Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And this is the very Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you now pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning pleading with you that you would show us your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. As we have heard from your word already, both in the liturgy and now your word read, as we have sung your praises through the worship team leading us, as we have sought to pray to you and appeal to you because Jesus Christ is actually interceding for the saints Lord, we come to you and we ask that you would be attentive to our prayers. Father, there are many here who are troubled, many here who are anxious, many who are struggling, and I pray, Lord, that you would help them to be able to find comfort and security and steadfastness in the finished work of Jesus Christ, even in your promises, Heavenly Father, that you will preserve those who trust in him. Holy Father, I pray that you would guide us in such a way that we would be a holy people, a special people, even as we were reading from the book of Titus, that we would in fact be and know and understand ourselves to be your own cherished possession, that we would know the privilege of being the people of God. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help any here who are uh, having hypocritical thoughts about themselves, that that they, in fact, are not following Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they would be exposed. But we pray and hope that they would turn from their sins and be saved. Lord, we pray that everyone here would, would in honesty and openness, be a follower of Jesus Christ, would look to him and his blood and righteousness, and so be saved. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of this church. We thank you for the many volunteers that you have raised up 
even particularly those volunteers who are serving and teaching children, teaching them the faith, the faith that is in Christ, helping them to know the gospel. We thank you for that service. We pray you would continue to raise up workers for the harvest. The, the harvest is plentiful indeed, but the laborers are few. And Lord, I pray you would raise many up. We thank you that you've raised up many, many churches to bear testimony to the gospel in this, in this city. We thank you for the upcoming King and Kingdom Conference. We pray that you would bless the speakers as they prepare their messages for that conference. We thank you for Fairview Baptist Church. We pray for that ministry to flourish and continue. And Pastor Tim Stevens there, protect him and guide him as he preaches your word, even this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are close to the hurting and the downtrodden. And we pray for those that are struggling this morning, even in our church, or those who aren't in attendance today that we know and care for. Lord, we pray even your spirit would bring them comfort by your word. Lord, we are troubled by the things that we see and hear about in the Middle East, uh, the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, and we pray, Lord, we pray that through this terrifying conflict, we pray, Lord, that many people would see that they cannot trust in princes and that there is no Messiah among the children of men in this age except Jesus Christ, the true living one. We pray that there would be a mass repentance in the Middle East, that Muslim countries would flee from their idolatries and repent of their sins and come to faith in Christ, that those who claim Jewish ethnicity would believe in Jesus Christ, the true Jew, the son of Abraham, the true Israel. I pray that they would put their faith in him. Lord, we thank you for the weight of your word. We thank you that it is a word for us. It is a word that is enduring and eternal. And we pray that you would open our hearts to believe your word. Forgive us for our unbelief, Lord. Help us in it. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help us now, even now, by your Spirit, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the last week, since the terror of October 7th, we're in distant Calgary, and yet our, our attention has been directed not, not merely to the horrors of war, but to the geography of conflict. The Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and of course, Jerusalem. We've been thinking about Jerusalem. And on this Lord's Day, we worship and serve the King who is King of Jerusalem, but King of more than Jerusalem. He's king of Israel, but king of more than Israel. More than the Middle East. He's more king of more even than the dominion of Canada, as we used to be called. The dominion over Canada that he has from sea to sea, even as our own 
motto for Canada from Psalm 72, a psalm from a son of David, Solomon says, he will rule from the river to the ends of the earth, referring even to the Jordan River and from that river even to distant lands like here in the hinterlands of Alberta and beyond. Jesus rules. He reigns. He is over all. But as we begin even looking at this passage, we, we see that whatever details are going on in the fog of war, uh, which the fog of war between Israel and Gaza, and we were just talking about it as the elders and DJ mentioned just the fog of war, that phrase. We can't assume that the events of October 7th are somehow more real than the events of the first century and Jesus' ascent to the Mount of Olives on this day described in Mark chapter 11. The danger, I think, for each of us is to think that the stuff that we see and hear about today, our contemporary news, is more real than this news, than the news of the Word of God, than the news, the good news of the Gospel. We can get hoodwinked to thinking that that news is more real and relevant than this news. And so I invite you this morning to consider the reality, the weight, and the import of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the gospel of Mark this morning. Jesus and his kingship was inaugurated there at that time and remains active and he is reigning today. Yes or no? Is Jesus reigning? Yes. Okay. Jesus is alive and reigning right now. Jesus has not somehow abdicated his throne right now. Jesus is not kind of asleep at the wheel, asleep at the switch. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. So never think that simply because atrocities occur at the hands of terrorists, it means that Jesus has temporarily stepped off the throne. Rather, you need to know that whether Hamas terrorists or all those who call evil good or good evil, whether they're Muslim or Jew, Palestinian or Zionist, or anyone else who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they will be judged by God the Righteous One. And that includes any here, any person, any soul here that is not fleeing to Jesus Christ as their refuge. If you are here and you have not done that and you are not doing that, you think you can stand on your own two feet before God, the God that you think isn't there, or the God that you don't think you need to pay any attention to. You are under great threat from the true and living God. Now we have in this passage in Mark chapter 11, one of the classic texts for Palm Sunday. But this geography of this text is then very relevant for us even now. As, we've, as I said, we've, we've been learning and relearning this geography of conflict. And Jerusalem is the focal point of Mark chapter 11. And it becomes a focal point through the rest of Mark's gospel. And this passage on what's been called the triumphal entry 
It's also paralleled in Matthew 21, Luke 19, John 19, through all the Gospels. The geography is very important, I would argue. And if you're, you're like most of us, you have kind of vague notions of the geography of Israel, but unless you've kind of seen something on the news, you, you don't really know what's going on. There's these names that people don't use anymore. Jerusalem they use, but these others they don't. And so it can be very confusing when we read in Mark 11, verse 1 of Jeru- Jerusalem's easy, but Bethphage, Bethany, and the Mount of Olives. These places exist today. So east of Jerusalem, Bethphage is less than a mile from Bethany, which is today a Palestinian village named Al-Azaria. Now if you, you say that together quite quickly, Al-Azaria, it sounds like something to do with Lazarus. Well, it is Lazarus's place, the place of Lazarus. And, and we are geographically thinking today in thinking in that conflict around Jerusalem we're geographically thinking about today what is the bet the west bank of the Jordan River in eastern Jerusalem now that's what that's where we're at in Mark 11 as well so this includes today the Arab neighborhood of Silwan which it sounds like Siloam And there had once been an olive orchard, and so it was called the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you you could have looked down into Jerusalem and seen the temple below. Now the ancestor of Jesus, David, the king of the Jews, he had ascended the Mount of Olives. I don't know if you knew that. In 2 Samuel 15 and verse 30, David, it says, was weeping as he went barefoot, and his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went in 2 Samuel 15.30. Now why would David, the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the king of the Jews, the anointed one at that time, why was he crying? Why was he crying when he went to the Mount of Olives? Well, it's because, if you know from the story in 2 Samuel 15, and I just encourage you, it's a good time these days to read first and second Samuel, first and second Kings to try to understand the history of Israel. Why was he crying? Well, he had been betrayed by a conspiracy. And he came to his own people and his own received him not, and he was betrayed by those closest to him. He was betrayed by Ahithophel, his counselor, and even betrayed by his own son Absalom, and that's why he was crying. So conspiracies and betrayals and regional warfare, nothing new. But David made that tearful ascent to the Mount of Olives, but David did return to Jerusalem. And in our passage, the geography matters. It's really important. For Jesus, he, he used Bethany and the Mount of Olives as sort of his staging area for this invasion, for this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that's what we commemorate on Palm Sunday in the beginning of those Easter Holy Week celebrations. But we also have to see then as we enter into this reading, as we read about this triumph, the triumphal entry, we have to also see that there is a sense that Jesus was beginning what has been called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. It is the beginning 
of those sufferings, even as he is temporarily met in triumph. Now, everything Jesus did had a purpose. Everything, especially when you're tracing these last days of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Everything has a purpose. And we read, he said in verse 2, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And then you've got verses 4 to 6. There's kind of that interchange between the disciples and the folks in the village of Bethphage. Now, we know about the donkey colt. And I think in getting this colt, there is a minor miracle involved that most preachers don't talk about. It is this idea that the colt, it was a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. It is a minor miracle because only the Messiah could ride on an unbroke donkey. And I should, I could mention just, I saw somebody get bucked off at the rodeo yesterday. But this, this unbroke donkey, there's no buck, no bolt, no rodeo, it's a minor miracle. So that's, nobody else is going to say that. That's just something for me. That's what I found interesting. But the major miracle, and there is a major miracle, the major miracle was that the prophecy about the Messiah would be fulfilled in this special detail. And so Zechariah chapter 9, you can turn in your Bibles there. Zechariah chapter 9 is quoted by other gospel writers, Zechariah 9 gives us an important promise which Jesus was fulfilling in real time in Mark 11. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. So this is an ancient prophecy looking to the future, of which Mark chapter 11 is the fulfillment. It says in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a what? A donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. And then he says, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. This is the Lord speaking. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from, to, from the river to the ends of the earth. So, that's the, that's the passage other gospel writers actually quote the passage. That's the passage that's being fulfilled here in Mark 11. So on the one hand, the donkey colt expressed the Messiah's humility there in verse 9. It's a point that lots of modern evangelicals want to point out, the humility of Jesus. But we also need to see that the donkey riding was a signal for the kingship of the Messiah to be so powerful so mighty, it's so, he has such entitlement to rule and reign and such power that all of the military industrial complex that Solomon had built up and all of the armaments that were arrayed against Jerusalem for generations, all of that would be obliterated. 
So he can just he can come in on a donkey. He doesn't need a war horse. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't need a tank. He can come in on a donkey. That's how in control he is. So he it's humble, but he's completely in control. And Messiah on a donkey with that humility, with that control, he has absolute rule and he is invulnerable and invincible at that point. We mentioned Canada's motto from Psalm 72, verse 8. It's repeated here in Zechariah's prophecy. His rule shall be from the river to the ends of the earth. It's a prophecy of kingship. The Messiah would be king. And Jesus was, was fulfilling that prophecy by acquiring this unbroken donkey colt. But it's important then to read the context of Zechariah to understand the reactions then of the people to Jesus' fulfillment. Like, it's not just Jesus, you know, they're thinking the rodeo's coming. No, it's not that. There's a different reason. Zechariah 9 says in verse 13, he says, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Okay, that to me sounds like a call to arms. Today, you're going to hear, and you've heard even in the last week, I mean, it happened, you hear it all the time, but you heard it in the last week, you'll hear about Zionists versus jihadists. And here in this, this verse, this sounds like an apparent call for Jews to be used by God to be the sharp edge of God's sword against Gentiles. That's what it appears to be. Now, if you were a first century Jew, you're living, you've been living under Greek cultural dominance since Alexander the Great, uh, you know, probably 300, it was 360 years prior to this. You've been living under that Greek dominance all that time, and then you were living under the political dominance of Rome, Rome, its Caesars, and Rome's regional puppet rulers through Herod's family. You've been living under all of that. Well, then you would be pretty excited, I think, if you're on that road from the Mount of Olives and you are seeing the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.13 right in front of you, you might be ready to be wielded like a warrior's sword. You would be lining up and saying, yep, here I am. Sign me up. So this starts to give us then a sense of what was going on. Because at that point, if you were there and you're putting yourself in these folks' shoes, you might be ready to fight under the banner of the Star of David. That symbol of Judaism today. The flag of Zionism. The flag of the modern secular state of Israel. But we're talking about the first century. It's just that then when you read in Zechariah 9, verses 11 and 12, the verses before this one, they explain that something different is going on, even in that prophecy, which is so important to explain what is going on in Mark 11. Because in Zechariah 9, verses 11 and 12, the Lord said, And as for you also, he says, 
Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Now only time would reveal that the blood of the covenant would be a new covenant in the blood of Jesus, as he would say in Luke 22. We also look at it in 1 Corinthians 11 when we, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper at our church. Only time would reveal that Jesus came to lead captivity captive, Ephesians 4. Only time would reveal that in Christ you are no longer a slave but a son, Galatians 4. Only time would reveal that Jesus is the stronghold, that those who have fled to him for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before them, Hebrews 6.18. Only time would reveal that. But for the moment, in Mark 11, then consider that here is then this one coming in triumph. Is it the same Messiah? Is it the king they expected? Is he doing it in the way that they expected? At this point, the likely estimation is they did not understand the messianic kingdom that Jesus was bringing, but they had a different understanding. But for the moment, let's see what they did. Let's consider the cloaks on the road and the leafy branches. You see it there in Mark 11 and verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. So what, what is this? You know, what, what's going on here? Is this meaningful? I think if we see actually why they were doing this, this helps us to understand how these folks viewed the triumphal entry. If everything has a purpose, then why does Mark record that fact that they were spreading their cloaks on the road? Well, again, we need to go to the Old Testament. This is, this is all rich with Old Testament illusion and connection. In 2 Kings chapter 9, that is the historical reference. And I'll just summarize the episode for us. In 2 Kings chapter 9, it's an episode after Solomon's kingdom is divided. By that point, they had a wicked, wicked king named Ahab in Israel. And he was married to this Baal-worshipping, not hey Baal, but Baal. Uh, I just, sometimes I say Baal, and I think, you know, worshipping a hey Baal. Anyways, just to break it up. Uh, her name, you know it, is Jezebel, right? Jezebel. Uh, not Jezebel, yeah. Just keep it keep it going. Uh, now it's all pretty heavy, so I need to strive for a laugh somehow. Um, the prophet Elisha, so not Elijah, but his successor Elisha. He came, and he comes to this army commander, not of royal lineage, not of royal lineage, just a commander, just a military guy. And he comes and he anoints that commander, this very unsuspecting and unlikely man named Jehu. 
and he anoints him. Elisha anoints him to be the king over Israel with the promise that God, in verse 7, would avenge, this is verse 7 of 2 Kings 9, would avenge himself against wicked Ahab and Jezebel, and he doing, and God's going to do it for the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. So this guy gets anointed. I mean, he's just, he's just a dude in the army. And he gets anointed to be the king over Israel with the promise that Ahab, God is going to take out Ahab and Jezebel. Now when Jehu's buddies asked him what was going on, he said, they said, is all well? Why did this madman come to you? Because that's what they thought about preachers back then. Probably still the same today. Uh, and Jehu went on to explain that Elisha had anointed him as king over Israel, the anointed one of the Lord. So you've got this army commander is anointed to be the new king over Israel with the promise that God was going to cut down the wicked rulers. That sounds very encouraging to an oppressed people. This sounds like, wow, we've been waiting for this. God is going to make stuff happen. And what did these guys do? What did they do with Jehu? Well, 2 Kings 9, 13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. And I think that we see in the actions of the disciples, they knew this. They knew this is how you respond to a military conqueror who's coming. This is how you respond And Jesus' triumphal entry was viewed the same way. Jesus was the new Jehu, the new military commander who, with God's help, would kill the idolaters and the oppressors. Now, Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead, so there is is truth in that. But the question is, what was happening? What What was going on with the kingdom he was bringing? Nevertheless, these guys all, they're showing their loyalty, they're showing their esteem for Jesus. The disciples are putting their garments under the new king so they don't have to sit on the dirty donkey. They're putting them in, on the road so even the, the donkey's feet don't have to touch the dirty road. And of course, then they cut the leafy palm branches, which at every Palm Sunday, you know, the kids make in Sunday school, they make the, kind of the paper palm leaves to wave. And it's because in Leviticus 23, 43, there is this, this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, and this idea that these this construction materials of the tabernacles, of these tents, of these booths, would be remembered and celebrated. And so the palm branches are the reminder of that exodus when Israel was delivered from Egypt and they had to sojourn in the desert, but they got out. They were brought out. God brought them out of slavery. And so bringing the palm branches is saying, yes, we've got our new deliverer, our new liberator here. This is cause for celebration. Our guy is here. Our candidate has come. This is our guy that we want. And so they said, blessed, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're praising God for this, for bringing this new Jehu. 
for bringing the one to fulfill Zechariah 9. Well, like a lot of things, they didn't understand. Now, you, may, you think, oh yeah, but no, why are you saying they didn't understand, Clint? Well, Jesus had been saying that they didn't understand. Jesus understood that. You remember back in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, when he said, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days will rise. And they're all like, oh yeah, we're totally on board with that. We know he repeated it three times, and they're, they, they're not on board with that. They're confused by it. They don't know what's going on. Verse 32 of Mark 9, but they did not understand this statement but they were afraid to ask him about it. It's like all of us would be. So we see from Jesus' own ministry that there was this emerging distinction. And it was the distinction between Jewish expectation and Jesus' actual fulfillment. This is why Jesus is always going back, even with the Pharisees and his opponents, and he says, Have you not read? Why? Because he had to go back to the Bible because the development of Jewish expectation had changed over time. And this distinction, I could say, is the distinction between the Star of David and the Son of David. Now, as Jesus comes, he's coming in the name of the Lord. He's he's coming to bring the Messianic kingdom. It is the fulfillment even of David's prophecy if you go back into 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we've looked at it a few times in, this, in the course of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, very important prophecy to remember. 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is one you should kind of bookmark and be aware of. 2 Samuel 7 is the, is the prophecy and the covenant establishment between God and David. So God makes this agreement with David. Scholars call it the Davidic covenant. And in 2 Samuel 7, it says in verse 12, sorry, I'll back up in verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you, David, rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So he's going to make him a house. Now what does that mean? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who, will, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Well, we do know that there was all kinds of descendants from David. The rest of 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings outlines the descendants of David. When we think about Mary... And Joseph, even at Christmas time, we go through those genealogies to see their own connections to this lineage of David. Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name. Now, we might think, oh, well, that's, that's going to be Solomon building a, a literal temple. 
right? Building a house for God's name. But it's actually building this household, this entire family. That's the house to be built. I, he shall build a house for my name. And how do we know this is more than just a building? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we've looked at this before, but it is so important to see that word forever because it shows that the, the physical descendants of David did not fulfill this prophecy. It requires one who is a legitimate human descendant and yet who is God in the flesh, who can live forever because he establishes his throne forever. And that is then what is provided for as people are singing the praises. They are seeing, this one comes, verse 9 of Mark 11, he comes in the name of the Lord. It is the coming kingdom of our father David. They know this prophecy. But do they understand the implications of this eternal kingdom? It, it would appear that maybe they understand some, but not all. Now, when I was in college, it's a long time ago because I'm getting old, uh, but when I was in college in California at Master's College, my professor, my Bible professor, Doug Bookman, he told the story about going to Israel. And, and he'd made this trip to Israel, and he spoke to uh, an Israeli soldier. And, and he just asked the, the Jewish-Israeli soldier, he, he just asked, so, so, so are you still looking for the Messiah? He said. And the soldier, soldier just looked down and he tapped his Uzi, his machine gun, and he said, This is all the Messiah I need. Now, that might not be the case for many Jews. Certainly, Jews who believe in Jesus Christ don't believe that. But there are many people that their Messiah resides in things, in politics, in military hardware, in the things of this world. Now we see that that expectation, and even possibly in Mark 11, in the triumphal entry, there was people who were, they're looking for Jesus to bring that kind of power, that kind of military power. But what is then the implication of this triumphal entry? Well, I would argue that this split between the Star of David and the Son of David comes into view. Because Jesus says the Son of David, who these folks were proclaiming, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're proclaiming that. But it's critical then to see that Jesus as the Son of David is the Messiah who is eternal. This is the critical question. Now, these guys didn't know that at this point. Maybe if they knew it, they knew it by the eye of faith. But they had not seen whether or not Jesus would live forever. That's why they were so disillusioned when Jesus died on the cross, and they died, and they put him in the hole in the ground. Because how can the kingdom of David be established forever if the son of David stays in a tomb? And so they needed the resurrection. And that's also the vindication of Jesus, that he is the true Messiah. The star of David is distinguished from the son of David, though, in terms of Jewish expectation. You have to be very clear 
about those expectations versus what Jesus fulfills in his declarations. In Romans chapter 9, I just invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 9. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that Romans 9 through 11 has some of the most dense teaching on the New Testament's view of people of Jewish ethnicity. And Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Speaking of ethnic Jews. They are Israelites, and to them... These are all the privileges. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. These are special, distinct blessings that have been bestowed upon on Israel. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see, there are all of these distinctions but then Paul goes on to say even though there's all these privileges all these things have been given he says in verse 6 of Romans 9 but it is not as though the word of God has failed isn't that wouldn't that be the thought wouldn't that be the thought if I mean there's there's people that think that think the, the idea that Jesus is a fulfillment of the promises then that would be a failure of those promises because they see Oh, well, Israel is, is not. It doesn't have all the territory they think they should have. It doesn't have all of its privilege it thinks it should have. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, uh, not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But then he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted offspring. And I'll stop there. See, these promises are really important. And this is, this is, there's a lot of confusion in Christian churches about these issues. It's about Jewish expectation or Jesus' declaration about the star of David or the son of David. But we see, if you look over then in Galatians chapter 3, Turn to Galatians chapter 3. I know we're jumping around a little bit. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says the same thing as Romans chapter 9. He says in Galatians 3, 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's a remarkable statement. Uh, just an utterly astounding statement. It's very consistent with Romans 9, which he would write later. Very consistent, because he's saying it's about faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the promises. 
The one who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That is then the proper fulfillment of the Jewish expectation. And when you believe in the Jewish Messiah, the true Christ, you actually become a child of the promise. You enjoy then being brought into this lineage. It's utterly amazing. It's, 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 such, a, it's such a privilege. In Galatians 3 and verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to, to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Who is the seed of Abraham? Jesus is. Jesus is. He's the seed of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. But what's amazing is this has been opened up to likely most of you are Gentiles. And this has been opened up to you if you believe in the Jewish Messiah. If you believe in Jesus, you, a Gentile, one of faith, Paul says you are a son of Abraham. Whoa. And all of a sudden, all of the politics you've been reading about and all of the war correspondence and all this stuff going on and all of your sureties about understanding Israel and and Gentiles and all these things get blown up. And you realize the fulfillment that Jesus has wrought. In other words, those who believe in Jesus as the Son of David, the Son of God, are those who are the inheritors of the promises. God has special designs for ethnic Jews to show them his special love. I grant that. Romans 9 through 11, chapter 11, has lots of discussion of that. They'll be joined together. I think elect ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus Christ, they will be joined together with elect Gentiles in Christ, those who believe in Christ. If they don't believe in Jesus, they're, they're not saved. Guys like, you know, John Hagee and different, these guys on TV, they will teach what's called the Zonderweg, this separate way that Jews have. They don't have to believe in Jesus and they're going to go to heaven. Not true. There is no other name given among men by which they may be saved. It's only in Christ. Paul then says in Galatians 4, as I already referenced, Galatians 4.4, 4. when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth one of the sons, his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we, and when he's saying we, he's including these Galatians, Gentile dudes, right? They're not, they're not, he's talking about these Galatians. These, these people that are not Jews, but they're believing in Jesus Christ. That we, Paul the Jew and the Galatian Gentiles, were both believing in Jesus, that we might receive adoption as sons. That the Jew needed adoption as son. The, Jewish get, the Jew gets to be adopted as a son because he believes in Jesus. The Gentile gets to be adopted as a son because he believes in Jesus. And then he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, Jew. You are no longer a slave, Gentile. 
but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is then the main argument in the book of Galatians that Paul deals with. He's getting back to what Jesus was showing in his triumphal entry and what Mark recorded was the tensions between Jewish expectation and the reality of Jesus' kingdom. Because in the book of Galatians, the problem was there were Jews who were telling Gentiles and they were saying, yes, you believe in Jesus, but now you've got to go back and try to be a good Jew as well. And Paul said, that's a different gospel. That is a different gospel. Paul concludes his letter in Galatians 6. Just flip to the end there, because then this, all of this, all of this expands on and clarifies and informs how you understand what Jesus was doing at the triumphal entry. Paul says in Galatians 6.11, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It, it, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you, Gentiles, to be circumcised and only in order that you may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. It wasn't enough that they were believing in Jesus. It wasn't enough. These so-called Jewish Christian missionaries, supposedly, uh, another term scholars use is they're the Judaizers. They said it's not enough to believe in Jesus, you also have to start keeping the Jewish law. Because the Jewish stuff is always privileged, man. You've, you've got to keep the Jewish stuff. And they want to force you to do it. But then Paul makes the remarkable statement in Galatians 6.13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. They don't keep it. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They want another convert, not to Jesus, but to their version of Judaism. And then you have then that memory verse that we all, many of you cite. Verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My identity is not based on my ethnicity, nor of my religious uh, boundary marker keeping. My identity is in Jesus Christ alone. And he says something further, and when you're watching the news in weeks ahead, this is very important to keep in mind. Verse 15, For neither circumcision accounts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What that means is neither the distinctives of Jewishness count for anything, nor the distinctives of non-Jewishness count for anything, but a new creation. That's what counts. Who is the new creation? So as you consider even the events of the Middle East, are you thinking about, well, who are the new creations in the Middle East? What's happening with Jewish Christians? What's happening with Palestinian Christians? What's happening with Syrian Christians? Or Christians in Iran? Or Christians in Egypt? Or Christians in Ukraine? Or Christians in Russia? This is why it's so helpful to be a global Christian. You realize, oh yeah, well there's brothers and sisters in all of these places. 
And we have to be aware of these things because they are the ones to whom we are bound if you're a Christian believer. And then Paul says in Galatians 6, 16, and this is my understanding of this verse and you can disagree with me. He says, and as for all who walk by this rule, which rule? The rule that the new creation is what matters. All who walk by that rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God, according to Paul in Galatians, are Jews and Gentiles, which is basically anybody and everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. That is then the true Israel. Not because the church is a replacement of Israel, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. And all those who are united to Christ are in Him. He is the true Israel. Now, I've taken lots of time to go and move from the triumphal entry, which many of you know its events quite well. But to move and understand then the historical context that changes the expectations that Jews had over against the kind of kingdom Jesus brought. My hope is that we would see that Jesus is the Jewish king, but he is our king. He is king over Jew and Gentile. And so that becomes then the question for you this morning. Are you actually trusting in Christ as your king? And is your identity in him? Or is it in something else? Is it in your ethnicity? Is it in your heritage? Is it in your nationality? All of these things can be good and beneficial. It's not saying they aren't. It's not saying you can't have them. not saying you can't have these preferences. But what it is saying is, in the hierarchy of our preferences, in the hierarchy of all, all the things that we would ascribe to ourselves, all of our roles, all, all of the things that overlap, is Jesus Christ above all? Is he the one that governs all? That's what it means for Christ to be our king. It means he has ownership and control over all, and I submit to him in the all. I think if we submit to the king and his kingdom on his terms, we will find, as he said in Matthew chapter 11, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we will come to him and we will truly find rest for our souls, which is the peace that Zechariah 9 promised. It is the peace, peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that, friends, Romans 8.1, is the most important peace in this world. And it is the peace that every soul is craving in, in this whole world. And if you have it, you have the privilege of that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So I just urge you all, even with the burden of the news, I urge you all today to look to him exclusively. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as a whole sweep of your progressive revelation has shown us, you have done a new thing. You have done a new work. You have inaugurated a new kingdom. 
you have brought to pass even the kingdom of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and who rose from the dead, who inaugurated his kingdom, but who is coming again to consummate his kingdom, to judge the living and the dead, the one who comes with a sword out of his mouth, the one who comes with armies of angels. O Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our identity exclusively in him and see the privileges that you've given to us, privileges foretold and anticipated through the people of Israel, but ones that have been extended to us because Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, to Moses, the promises even to David, because Jesus is the son of David who has established your house forever. O Lord, I just pray every soul here would be a part of your household forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.